navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. It's very nice to see everybody and uh, have you back after for me, which was a summer without having a series to present to you. So we're in part one of the Back to Basics series. And the goal of this is, frankly, just to get everybody back to basics instead of going through detailed um you know, litigation on a catastrophic automobile accident or a construction accident or medical malpractice, as I've done previously. Uh, this is a short three series, um, three part series. Uh, next month, we're going to talk about working with experts, uh, how to build your case liability and damages wise. I love that. I think that's really important uh, to talk about. And then the last one that we'll do the following month will be on how to get items into evidence and how to impeach witnesses. Again, these are basics that uh, warrant a review so that everybody has these uh, basics locked down. So today we're gonna talk about depositions, which is just such an important topic to discuss because most of us uh, will find ourselves taking someone's deposition or defending a witness in a deposition uh, as part of what we do as attorneys. So I love talking about this, lots to chat about, also, I'm happy to take questions. As most of you know, having attended uh, likely one of my prior CLEs, feel free to put your questions in the Q&A. If I get a chance to look at them during uh, one of the breaks, uh, I will respond to them at that time afterwards. Otherwise, from 2 to three, two to 2.30, um, that's when we reserve the time for the Q&A. So stay on. That's when usually the good stuff happens where it's interactive. I'll read the question. I'll give the answer. I also ask everyone to type into the Q&A, you know, comments. It doesn't have to be a question. If it's something I say that doesn't sound right to you or something someone else puts up there, I like to make this a community uh, gathering to talk about depositions. Lastly, you'll notice something new on my backdrop, which is right to my side here. It's a flow code. So if you just hold your camera up to that and click on the link, that will take you to my podcast, my one-on-one -on -one scheduling calendar, uh, my book link, and uh, all that sort of good stuff. If you haven't scheduled a one-on-one -on -one with me yet, I've met with about 200 of you in the last two years. It's been great. We talk about anything and everything. Please schedule so I can get to meet you and we can chat. All right. Now, Let's get to depositions. What I'm going to talk about for the next hour is how to prepare, how to prepare a witness who's going to be questioned, how to prepare yourself to question a witness, and then what goes on in the deposition and how to handle yourself, whether you're the one asking the questions in the deposition or the one defending a witness in the deposition. All right. Now, as we all know, my mantra is preparation, preparation, preparation. It applies to everything we do as attorneys in whatever practice area we're in. And certainly depositions warrant a very high level of preparation. So first we're gonna talk about preparing your witness, whether it's your client or whoever it may be that you are going to be sitting next to or virtually next to in a Zoom deposition. You need to take time to prepare that witness for the deposition. And let's talk about that now. 
first things first, don't wait to the last minute. You do not want to be preparing a witness outside of the court reporter's room on the morning of. You don't want to be preparing your witness uh, on the phone or via Zoom right before they get on that day. There are lots of reasons we'll talk about to refrain from waiting to the last minute to prepare a witness, whereas it's much more beneficial, and I stress important, to prepare your witness for a deposition several days, if not weeks, in advance of the deposition. By preparing them in advance, that gives you time to go over everything we're going to discuss, gives you time to address issues that may come up during prepar uh, preparation. It gives your witness time to digest everything you spoke about in preparation so they can get prepared mentally and with the proper answers for the deposition. So once you know you've got a date locked down for a deposition of a witness that you're going to be with and defending, contact that witness, say, let's get a deposition prep on the books. Let's do it a week before. I usually try and do it a week before uh, for that first one. So it leaves time if you need to have an additional prep session uh, for the following week, maybe the day or two before the actual deposition. But lock that in. You can do the prep via Zoom. You could do it on phone if possible. I like to do it in person or via Zoom so you can see how the witness responds to, to questions that you're going to pose. And uh, you can work on it so that they will bring their best game at the time of the deposition. All right, so don't leave it to the last minute. When you get together for that first session to prepare your witness, what I always recommend doing is going over the ground rules. And by the way, in the materials today, uh, I'll, talk, I'll just briefly mention as we get along uh, through the program what's in there, but the first bulk of the materials is my chapter on depositions from my book uh, on how to successfully litigate a personal injury case. Again, it's on Amazon. You can get all the information uh, by clicking on this flow code or by going to Amazon. But I gave you a chapter right out of the book on depositions. And it's gonna go over pretty much everything I'm gonna talk about today. So don't worry if you forget it, you can go to the book, use that as a resource when you're gearing up. But what I talk about and what we're gonna talk about now is the ground rules. You need to tell your witness of what goes on in a deposition and, and what they should and shouldn't be doing, okay? Explain what the ground rules are gonna be. And I generally give the following ground rules to my clients and witnesses. One, short answer, just answer the question. The example I give, and you can come up with your own, is for example, if you're asked, what time did you get up this morning? And your answer is, I normally get up at 7.30, but I didn't want to be late for the deposition, and I had to walk the dog, so I got up at 7 a.m. to give myself extra time. Wrong answer. Right answer? 7 a.m. Just answer the question. No color commentary. This is a question and answer session. This is not a discussion between you and the lawyer questioning you. Get that out of your head. This isn't a back and forth like what we have in day-to-day -day life. It is a question and answer session. Just answer the question. Keep your answers short. If you can answer it with a yes or no, that's fine. Make the lawyer ask the appropriate follow-up question. If they say, did you review any materials for the deposition today to prepare? You can say, yes. You don't have to get right into what did you review. 
they can ask the follow-up question of, okay, what materials did you review? So ground rule number one, just answer the question and keep it short. I tell them there will be some exceptions to the rule. If it's an injury case and it's my injured plaintiff, I'll let them know that towards the end of the question session, you're going to be asked about your pain and suffering, about things you can no longer do that you used to do, all right, about how the injuries have impacted your enjoyment of life. For those questions, I want you to unleash, open up the book, fill up pages in the transcript because the lawyer and the claims representative are going to be reading that. And if you just say, yeah, I'm good, I'm doing fine, that's not going to help your case. It's not going to help me when it's time to negotiate a settlement for you. So explain these ground rules. Another ground rule is how to handle objections. I don't recommend objecting a lot when my client uh, or when your client is being questioned. It ruins the flow. You don't want to get into it too much with your adversary. And we'll talk about that a little later in the hour. But I will tell my client that I have something that I call the hand rule. And some of you know this, and I'm happy to share it. Basically, if I hear a question that I want to object to, I put up my hand like this. If we're in person, I put it up right in front of my witness's face. If we're on a Zoom, I tell them you're going to see my hand go up like this in the Zoom. If you see the hand go up, it means shut down. You do not talk until either I put my hand down or I turn and I say, okay, you can now give an answer. You see that hand go up, it means stay quiet while I deal with the objection until I tell you to proceed. Use the hand rule, it's really effective. It gets to the point that all you have to do is throw up your hand when your adversary is speaking and they'll probably get a little flustered or start to rephrase their question before you even have to say anything. So I tell them about the hand rule. I explained that on a, I, I don't like to object a lot. So don't feel like you need me jumping in, all right? Short answers, I explain objections, all right? I explain what to expect at the deposition. For most people, this will be the first time they've ever been questioned in a deposition before. They don't know, is a judge going to be there? Are there going to be jury members? Is it going to be recorded by video, court reporter? How many people are there? Are lawyers going to be firing questions at them left and right, more than one lawyer? So I explain the layout. I'll say that it's just going to be me and you. There's no judge. There's no jury. It's going to be the lawyer for the defense and a court reporter. That's it. Court reporter is going to take down everything you say so that there will be a typed up transcript for you to review afterwards. The lawyer is going to ask you questions. I'll be sitting right next to you. You need to take breaks. You can take them as long as there's not an open question. And I'll be there the whole time. If you ever need to take a break to, for whatever reason, just say so, whether it's for the bathroom or you need to speak to me or you just need to clear your head, explain these things. Explain if there's going to be more than one lawyer involved in the questioning on the other side as an adversary, that they're not going to just be firing questions one, you know, back and forth, back and forth. One lawyer will ask most of the questions. And then when they're done, the other lawyer will ask some follow up, fill in the gap questions. All right. You can explain to them that there's a normal flow of questions. Usually we'll start with their background. Then it may get into their education or job experience. Ultimately, it'll get up to the key happening in the case. If it's an injury case, it'll get into the happening of the accident. If it's something else that happens, there's going to be a point where the background leads into the event. Then after the event or the accident, they'll naturally ask questions about 
damages, meaning your injuries. Was there an ambulance? Did you go to a hospital? Did you see doctors? Did it affect your work? There will be questions about your ability or inability to work as a result of an accident. Um, those may come early or later on, so be prepared for those. And then again, usually at the end of the deposition are the questions about pain and suffering that we'll talk about, all right? Focus on areas of concern. Focus on areas of concern. If it's a pedestrian knockdown and you know that your client had the right of way and the defendant is turning left and you're representing the plaintiff, but there was something in the report about you had a cell phone in your hand, all right? Your client had a cell phone. Tell the client, listen, we need to explain what was going on. Were you on the phone? Were you looking down? Were you talking? They're going to focus on these questions. You had the right of way. Don't worry about that. But let's make sure that you're prepared to answer these questions. I don't care what you say about anything else, but this, okay? Let them know if there's a specific area of focus. Put your client at ease that they cannot ruin the case except for fill in the blank. There's one area if, if you're representing the driver who made that left-hand turn. Say, I don't care about anything else. When you're questioned, the key part here is going to be, why didn't you see this person? And you need to have a very good explanation for that. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about why you didn't see this person when you made that left-hand turn. All right. So think about the areas that need that extra focus. It could be a pre-existing injury. Maybe the injured party has a back injury and the defense is arguing they had a prior injury. And your client's telling you as a plaintiff, I never had problems with my back. Oh, they have those records, but that really was nothing. Make sure you get out all those records. Make sure you go through everything. Tell your client, they are really going to ask you a lot about your prior injuries. We need to be able to differentiate what was going, in, going on with your back before the accident, as opposed to what's happened now as a result of the accident. So you're going to want to focus on that stuff, the stuff that's important. When you get to the damages questions, when I'm prepping a plaintiff who's going to be questioned, I ask them about things they can't do anymore. And sometimes they don't know right away or they're like, yeah, I don't know. And that's why it's helpful to have them bring a spouse or a loved one or a family member, a parent, a child. And you can turn to the parent or child to say, or spouse, can you shed some light? I'm sure you've seen your loved one hasn't been able to do what they normally do. Can you give us some examples? Sometimes clients need to come up with examples that they haven't thought of. Simple things, okay? I remember a client I had had a broken hip and I was, he was an older Italian man and I was, he didn't want to complain at all. I said, come on, you have to explain. This is your day in court. Hopefully it won't go to trial, but you need to fill these pages with what this injury has caused you to suffer. So he said, well, you know, it's kind of weird. I, I, can't, uh, I can't get down to tie my shoes anymore. My kids had to get me these Velcro, you know, shoes. So I can Velcro them because I, I couldn't reach over. It was too hard for me to tie my shoes. I said, that's great. Talk about that. Okay, talk about that. You can't tie your own shoes anymore. So sometimes clients are going to need help coming up with the things that have affected them, being able to articulate their limitations as a result of an accident. So it's good to start drawing that out. And that's why you want to prepare them in advance so they can work on it. So that when it's time for the deposition, when those questions are asked, they're ready 
to talk about it. Same thing if you find a problem. Let's say, you know, I always ask my clients, my witnesses, hey, this is confidential, me and you right here, but you need to tell me, have you been convicted of a crime? Is there any stuff in your background that you're worried could come out? Because we need to know this. They're probably going to ask you, have you been convicted of a crime? They're probably going to ask you, have you ever filed for bankruptcy? These are questions. Have you filed any lawsuits? Have you been sued? Please tell me, because as a lawyer, the last thing you want is to be sitting at a deposition and you didn't bother asking your client, a sweet little old lady, that you're not thinking she's ever had an issue. And they say, sorry to ask, but I need to. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? And you turn and she's like, well, yeah, you know, about 20 years ago, I was involved in a, in a heist of a bank and I went to jail for it. And you're sitting there like, oh, my God. This way, you want to know these things in advance. Ask them the questions so then you could prepare your objections properly. You could prepare their how they should answer it best. That's why you need to prepare in advance. All right. Make sure that you've done your homework about the case before you prepare your client or your witness. Review all the medical records, review the photographs, review the incident reports. Show your client documents or photos that you expect your client may be shown at a deposition so they're not surprised, okay? Show them things. Say, does this photo accurately represent the damage to your car or the accident site? Let them say whether it does or doesn't. Have a conversation. Let them know they may be shown this document with their signature on it. Have a conversation about it. Everything will go so much more smoothly if you take the time to properly prepare your client about what is going to happen in the case. All right. So this is as far as I want to get in preparing your client, although I can talk a lot more because we need to use some of the remaining time. And the next thing we're going to talk about is how to prepare yourself to question a witness. Before we do that, I'll let Michelle let you hop in and do the first code break, and I'll take a look at some of the questions. If you're listening via podcast, the first attendance verification code is POD115. Again, POD115. Um, rule 30 in federal court uh, tells you everything you basically need to know about uh, noticing and depositions and conduct of depositions. But there's also a subdivision, Rule 30B6. Rule 30B6 is a great discovery technique in and of itself. You serve a detailed notice under Rule 30B6 to a, a, to a corporate entity, and you can list you know, 10, 15, 20 different topics, subject areas, issues in the case that you want them to produce a witness with knowledge of. And it has to be a witness who either has personal knowledge or who did homework in an attempt to try and find the answers out. They need to produce that witness. That witness needs to be prepared uh, to have that knowledge. You can go right through the notice and ask them on all the topics. And if the defense produces somebody who hasn't looked into it, who doesn't have any information, who hasn't made efforts to bring specific responsive information, then the defense firm can be sanctioned. So. Check out the Rule 30B6. I've given you a sample from a federal case I had involving a fire in Co-op City uh, that's in the materials. So feel free to use that as you wish. Also, there's a similar rule that just came out in the last couple of years in New York State. It's uh, part of the uniform uh, rules of the court, and it's Rule 
202.20D, 202.20 little D. I've included that. It's basically the same sort of thing, but in state court. So I encourage you, whenever you have a corporate witness, serve a rule 202.20D notice specifying in detail what you want uh, to get out of the witness and to make sure that they produce someone with that knowledge. All right. Now, once you know who you're going to be questioning or have an idea of the witness, uh, the role of that witness relative to your case, think about what you really want to know. Just like a cross-exam or a direct exam at trial, you don't want to go into a deposition just asking questions just for the sake of asking it, whether you're questioning a plaintiff or a defendant or a witness or an expert. What do you want to know? Think about that. What does this witness potentially have as far as discoverable information that goes to an element of your case, that goes to an issue of liability or causation or damages? Think about what you want, and that's what you should ask questions about. And get organized. Get your file out. Go through all the material. Go through the reports, the police report, the medical records, um, any documents, investigative materials, photographs, review everything and see what of the documents in your file this witness may have knowledge of and be prepared to ask the witness questions about, about those documents. Last week, I conducted the deposition of a bus driver in an accident where a bus ran over and killed um, my, uh, my client's loved one, decedent. And so I made sure to go through all the discovery that I had, any document signed by this witness, any statement attributable to this witness, any video recording I had uh, from the bus that this bus operator was in. You have to get all that organized, have it ready, pre-market, uh, so it's ready uh, to be used in the deposition. I've been doing most of my depositions since COVID via Zoom, and I love it because I can share my screen. I don't have to make copies of everything. So I'll share my screen, I'll pre-mark items, I'll, sh I'll show it to the witness and their lawyer. We can all see it at the same time, but get organized. And the best way to do that is with your file and with an outline. I'm a big believer in outlines for everything we do, whether it's direct exam, cross-examination, outlining and opening a summation at trial. And certainly you should have outlines when you're going to be questioning a witness. And the best way to do that is you sit down. I use a yellow pad. Or sometimes I'll type it up on my computer, but create an outline, have point headings. One may just be background, employment. The next may be date of accident. The next may be, you know, type of vehicle. Uh, the next may be training and education. Whatever it is that you want to ask, have your outline. And then when you're ready in the proper flow of your questions to show an exhibit that you think is important, a document, a statement, a video, a photo, put that in your outline. I usually use the color red for exhibits. So I'll write intro exhibit one, and I'll write that in red, or I'll type that and I'll change the font in my outline to red. And it's a trigger to me, oh, all right, now it's time to go to that exhibit. A good deposition that is properly prepared will have an outline, will have all the exhibits when and about when you want to ask them placed in the outline. Your exhibits will be queued up. I like to set a folder when I'm doing my Zoom depositions. I'll create a folder on my computer and I'll call it 
defendant bus driver exhibits. And in that folder, I'll move in the video, I'll move in the photo, I'll move in the statements. So now I have that on my computer screen, uh, ready to go and ready to share. I can open them up, I can label them, exhibit one, video. So get organized, organization's important. You never wanna show up. We've all seen when you're at a deposition or at trial and your adversary's got papers all over, they're flipping through things. Let me see this flipping through medical records, flipping through stuff, totally unorganized. I don't like that and I don't find that to be acceptable. You should be organized and buttoned up and it'll create for a very smooth deposition. Just like in trial, you want a smooth direct examination. It's gonna make your life a lot easier when it comes time to actually conduct the deposition. When you have an organized outline, you have your exhibits organized, this way you can focus on your questions and the answers, all right? So outline's important, organize it, subject headings, put in the exhibits and what you wanna do. When you have your outline down and you're feeling pretty good and getting ready, and again, you're doing this all several days in advance of the deposition, don't wait to the last minute, I recommend you Google the witness, whoever that witness is, Google the witness. You'd be amazed the great stuff that you come up with. Uh, I've been lucky. I've come up with things where I've had, I had a ski accident case where there was one ski patroller and the other was the ski investigator. And I was surprised that the ski patroller and investigator hadn't discussed what happened in this horrific accident on that day. And then the night before questioning the investigator, I um, Googled her and her Instagram popped up. And what did I see but her arm around a guy? Who was it? It was the ski patroller. The guy that allegedly they didn't communicate about this horrific accident. <laughs> and then I find out that they're engaged. So in her deposition, I say, uh, and the ski patroller, you knew this person, right? Yeah. In fact, you were romantically involved. Objection, objection. What does this have to do with anything? I said, well, I'll tell you what it has to do with something. And I got into it. I said, were you living together? Objection, objection. Again, you can't block it. She has to answer it. We'll talk about that in a moment, what you can and can't block. And I got out that they're living together. So you mean to tell me this horrific accident happened. She's an investigator. He's the ski patroller. They had no conversation about it that day when they got home to, to where they share their house. So Google your witness, all right? Now, your preparation is gonna be different if it's a lay witness or an expert witness. And it could be extremely different. At both ends of the spectrum, Let's say you're questioning a driver in a car accident who rear-ended another car. Many lawyers have done hundreds of depositions like that, and you could probably do it without much of an outline and without too much preparation. If you've never done it before, you wanna make sure to do everything I've just described. But that's not gonna be that hard a deposition. On the other hand, let's say you're questioning an expert. Let's say you're questioning a biomechanical engineer or a medical expert in a medical malpractice case, or a physician who's uh, you know, the head of the ICU at a major hospital, and you're gonna be questioning that ICU doctor about treatment rendered in the ICU and whether they did things appropriately or not. Well, some lawyers get nervous. I can't question a physician. I can't question a biomechanical engineer. They have years of training. They know all this stuff. How can I possibly go head to head? Well, I'm gonna tell you how you go head to head. I do it all the time. You do your homework, you get a tutor. 
If you're handling a medical malpractice case and you know you're going to be questioning an ICU doctor, the head of the ICU, you need to have an ICU physician as your expert and prepare you. And I schedule a Zoom with my experts. And I go over and I ask them questions like I'm in fifth grade. And what does this mean? And what does that mean? And I do research and I get all the documents that I need and I do my homework. I had a case involving a condition called propofol infusion syndrome. And it was our argument that the ICU failed to diagnose it. And that ultimately caused my client's death. And I had to question all these ICU, the chief of an ICU, the attending ICU doctors about propofol infusion syndrome. And so I hired the proper experts. I got an expert in um, the ICU, uh, a medical expert. I got an expert uh, pharmacologist who did research on propofol infusion syndrome. I read everything I could on it. And it got to the point that when I started doing the depositions of these physicians, I actually knew more about propofol infusion syndrome than they did. And you may say, how is that possible? Well, it's the same way as lawyers. You know, I don't know anything about employment law. So, you know, someone could question me about it who's not a lawyer and know a lot more about employment law than I do. Just because you're a doctor or a lawyer doesn't mean you have knowledge in a specific area. And even if you do, with the proper level of preparation, we can become experts in lots of specific areas. And we can do really well with our questioning because we're gonna prepare so hard that we're gonna be able to get concessions. We're gonna be able to pin these witnesses down. But it takes time. You have to spend weeks preparing. You may, depending on the witness, get prior transcripts you wanna review. If this witness has testified a lot previously, you may want to review all of those and, and make notes to prepare to question the witness about that. You may want to look up publications authored by that witness. So when it comes time for an expert witness, you need to take the time to prepare. And if you do it properly, there's no reason you can't go in and do an incredible deposition and really put them on the defensive. And it's so much fun to see when you start to see the witness, you know, I can tell you I've questioned a lot of physicians or biomechanical engineers or other experts, and they come in and they come in all, you know, proud, like, you know, there's no way this lawyer is going to get anything out of me. And then you start to see them slowly, like, sink down in their seat lower and lower, putting their hands like this. And we take a break and get frustrated because you've done your homework. I just give you this brief analogy. If you ever think that, you know, you can't go head to head with anyone. Preparation's the key. Let's say I'm getting asked or you're getting asked to go into a boxing match, right? Hey, Andrew, you want to do a boxing match for charity? We've got this golden gloves guy who's willing to box with you. Um, and I'm like, uh, okay. So the golden gloves boxer is not worried about fighting a middle-aged lawyer, right? Who's never boxed in a professional match ever or an amateur match ever. But I get a trainer, right? I hit the gym. I start practicing my jab, my cross, my hook. And then we get film. We get film showing this, this uh, golden gloves guy that I've got a box. And my coach says, look at that. Look at that. In the third round, he always drops his left right after the, you know, right after he steps in to come to, to box, he drops his left. So here's the plan. Hang in there till the third round. And when he drops his left, give a, be ready to give the biggest, strongest hook you've ever thrown. And you're going to knock him out right? And you practice and you practice and I practice. You go in, sure enough, he drops it, you give the hook, you knock him out, you win. It's the same thing. 
these experts are going to think that they don't have to prepare hard for you, but you can out prepare them and you can be successful. So whatever it is, you can do it with the proper level of preparation and the proper level of help. You know, if you don't know how to prepare yourself, reach out to a colleague, reach out to me, schedule one-on-one. I'll tell you the resources that you need to avail yourselves of so you can do it, okay? Do your homework, do your research, um, and you can question anybody. All right, in the time that we have remaining, what I'd like to talk about is the actual conducting of the deposition. Most of you who have interacted with me prior to today know that I like to preach the importance of us all getting along in this profession. We can be adversaries without being adversarial or jerks to each other. And usually the first opportunity for lawyers to act like jerks to each other happens in a deposition for whatever reason, either the questioner is being a jerk or the person defending a witness is being a jerk. So don't be a jerk. I mean, try and be professional and respectful. And the best way to do that is know the rules of engagement, know what you can do and what you can't do and keep things short. So let's talk about it. First of all, you've all heard or probably have heard or will hear if you haven't yet about the usual steps. After the court reporter is ready to get started, at some point before you get underway, the court reporter is going to ask the lawyers, is this pursuant to order? Is it pursuant to notice? All that means is, is there a PC order, a compliance conference order, or did you just serve a notice or both? So you say both, one or the other. And then they say usual steps, okay, and everyone usually nods, yeah, yeah, usual steps are all right. But very few people have actually read what the usual steps are. So I've, inclu I've included in the materials today uh, sample usual steps in a federal uh, deposition I did and in a state court, New York deposition I did. In some, they're the same thing. And here's what the usual steps mean so that you're aware of it, even if you don't want to read it. It means that objections are preserved, all right? It means that if you forget to object to a question that's being asked, don't worry if it's going up for a summary judgment motion or for trial, you can raise an objection after the deposition. Objections are preserved usually for every reason except as to form. Form means asking an improper question. The classic example is, what time did you get up and what did you eat? That's two questions in one. So you would object to form. That needs to be broken up. What time did you get up? And then what time did you eat? So sometimes questions are just bad. Um, I ask bad questions sometimes. We lose our train of thought. It doesn't come out smoothly and you just need to rephrase. So you can object to form and you can just ask the your adversary, please rephrase. If they don't know why you're objecting, then you should tell them. Say, I'm objecting to form because you asked two questions in one. Can you please just break it up? Be polite, be short, keep your objections short. The usual steps means that objections are preserved and witnesses have to answer questions. There's very, very limited areas that permit you to direct a witness not to answer or to tell your adversary, my witness is not answering that question. One is if the question is palpably improper, it's got to be really bad. You've got to be questioning somebody about a trip and fall and out of the blue be like, you know, 
do you ever sleep with prostitutes? You know, <laughs> as a lawyer, you're like, what are you talking about? Objection. Don't answer that. That's probably improper. Okay. Otherwise, if it's somewhat relatable, you have to answer the question. You could object and say, oh, uh, not relevant, but the witness has to answer the question. Also, you are allowed to direct a witness not to answer if it's based upon a privilege. Most privileges we see are uh, attorney-client privilege. What did you and your lawyer talk about in preparing for this deposition? Objection. You can't ask that, and you're not answering that. I'm directing the witness not to answer. Please move on, counsel. All right? Uh, if it's a work product privilege, spousal privilege, uh, right not to self-incriminate privilege, all right? But you have to state the basis. It's a privilege, and I'm directing the witness not to answer. And then you move forward. Everything else is fair game, okay? The witness has to answer the question. Now, here's what happens. You get into the deposition. You ask a question. The adversary blocks it, says, I'm not going to let him answer that. You then should say, you're aware that you agreed to the usual steps. You're aware of the rules. You're not allowed to direct a witness not to answer. Well, I'm going to... I'm still blocking them. Okay. Um, just to be clear, um, you're aware that you're not allowed to. I'm going to mark this for a ruling, and we're going to reach out to the judge during a break and get a ruling uh, that says that you need to have your witness answer this question. So you make a note of it. You ask the court reporter, please index uh, that we want to mark this for a ruling. All right. And then you can continue to question on. And if they do it again, they do it again. All right. We're going to mark that for a ruling. We're going to mark that for a ruling. But here's the kicker. You need to actually get a ruling. Too many people mark things for a ruling and then just move on with the deposition. Bring the phone number of the judge's chambers and the judge's courtroom or law part or clerk's office, okay, with you. I bring one to every deposition, state or federal court. And then what I'll do is during the break, I won't get into it. I won't, before a break, have this long-winded argument with my adversary on the record. Don't do that. That doesn't help anybody and it costs money, all right? You and your adversary may not agree and likely won't agree on a dispute that may come up about a question or a topic or directing a witness not to answer. So just very quickly say, we agree that we can't agree. We'll agree to disagree. Let's mark it for a ruling. Let the judge decide and then move on. I see way too many lawyers uh, citing cases and arguing and getting into it I had a lawyer once do a deposition for me and I got the transcript back and there were five, six, seven, eight pages of argument. We're paying dollars per page for that argument. It costs money, okay, for the court reporter to sit, take that down. Save your arguments for the court, for the judge, for your motions. Don't waste time arguing. Don't waste time trying to convince your adversary, at least not on the record. Then what I'll often do is we'll take a break and I'll say to my adversary, look, you blocked six questions. Uh, I'm going to call the judge right now before we go back on and have the court reporter read the question. And you can answer to the judge while you're not blocking it. Do you want to go down that route or do you want to reconsider? You know, I'll agree that you have the right, you have preserved your right to object to it. And sometimes they'll reconsider, which is usually the smart move because they don't want to get in trouble with the court. So I'll do that. And then I'll call the judge right then and there. I've, I call judges all the time. And you'll usually... If you don't get the judge on the phone, you may get a law secretary 
will remind them that they can't direct and the judge doesn't look kindly on it. Um, but just the threat of calling alone, which you need to be able to back up, will help keep things moving. So that's super important. Uh, it's really annoying when people object to everything. I had a case once where my adversary literally objected to every question I was asking of their expert witness. I guess he felt it would show that he was fighting. And it got to the point, he would say, objection, form, relevancy, overbroad. And he'd like throw these like three or four words in after objection. I turned to him and I said, listen, you agreed to the usual steps. You don't have the, you don't need to object. And to the extent you're concerned, I'm putting on the record now, you have preserved every objection under the sun. You don't need to say the word objection. I still want to object and there's nothing I can do about it, but you need to know what the rules of engagement are. Don't waste a lot of time with speaking objections. Call the judge. One case that you might want to know about, I don't get heavy on the case law, more of the practical talk is Carvalho. It's a second department case. You may have heard it talked about C-A-R-V-A-L-H-O versus New Rochelle Hospital. That's if you're doing medical malpractice depositions. The key of that case is you can't ask one physician to comment on whether there was departures from the standard of care from another defendant physician. And there's a lot of disagreements between plaintiff's counsel and defense counsel and what falls within and without Carvalho uh, during depositions. But if you're going in to handle a deposition of a physician, uh, read the Carvalho case and do your homework on, on what it applies to maybe bring it with you. All right. Um, now, here's the big question that always comes up. Taking the witness out of the room. Privilege. If you take a witness out of the room and you speak with your witness, is that conversation privilege? Can they ask what you talked about? Are you allowed to take a witness out of the room? How is it not coaching? Isn't that illegal? Can you really direct the witness not to answer? Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm not an ethics lawyer. I'm a practicing attorney with probably almost three decades of experience doing depositions. You need to know the rules and you need to follow them. I'm not giving you permission to break rules. However, what I will tell you from experience is sometimes rules need to be bent and they do to protect your case, to protect your witness. I had a case, a federal court case, where there was evidence that my client smoked cannabis a couple of hours before the incident. And I'm in federal court and the lawyer is getting into it with my client. Oh, do you smoke before you play soccer? Do you smoke before you have dinner with your parents? Do you smoke before? And after a while, I said, enough, stop. Well, you can't direct him not to answer. And I said, well, I am directing him not to answer. You know, and if we've got a problem with it, let's call the judge right now. No, no, I don't want to bother the judge. All right, well, then I'm going to do it in papers. So I shut it down. I wouldn't let him ask any more questions. And then he, we went on papers and the federal judge, we had a, a conference and the judge said, Mr. Smiley, you know, you're not supposed to block a witness from answering. I'm not happy about that. And I said, your honor, I had, I have an obligation to protect my client. And it was on the edge of bordering on uh, harassment and I wasn't going to allow it to happen. So the judge, you know, sort of smacked me on my wrist for it, but I did my job and I got my way. The judge said, all right, when you go back to do the deposition now, you know, you uh, you can't ask all these other questions. So pull your witness out of your witnesses blabbing on and on and on or saying bad stuff or says something wrong or lies. You need to catch that. Pull them out. Say you can't lie. 
we're going to go back in and correct the record. And if the lawyer, your advertiser says, oh, you're not allowed to take them out of a room. Thanks for that. I don't need you to tell me what I can and can't do. You step out of the room. If the lawyer asks you what you talked about, you block it. No, it's privilege. I've never seen a decision where a judge ordered a lawyer or a witness to talk about something the lawyer and that witness discussed during a break in a deposition. So yes, you're not supposed to pull them out of the room. Do I do it? Yes, if need be. Should you do it? Yes, if need be. Don't just sit back and let your witness get beat up or give horrific testimony. And then you have to go back and report to um, your boss or your partner or whoever why this deposition just went horrifically for you in your case and you did nothing but just sat there and say oh I, I didn't want to break the rules all right we have an obligation to advocate for our clients so you need to make sure you do that if the situation comes up when you're questioning a witness i want to make sure i bring this out because an hour is not a lot of time to talk about this but ask the who what where why and when questions when did that happen who were you with why did you say that? Uh, when did you say that? Okay, where were you? What was said? Ask open questions. This isn't cross-examination. A lot of people are afraid of the answer they're going to get. They know that their client's a hothead and probably told them off. And they're like, well, you're, you know, your client spoke inappropriately to me. Well, what did they say? Get it all out. Get all the bad stuff. Any possible explanation, justification, defense, reasoning that they may come up with, you want to know about it, even if it's not helpful to you, because you'd rather know in a deposition than at the time of trial. When it comes out at a deposition, all right, they're locked in. This is their explanation. This is what they're claiming happened. Now we know how to handle it. Now we know how to manage it moving forward. This is what their position is. Open questions. Ask away and listen. Don't be stuck to your outline. Many times a witness will give an answer or babble. Don't cut them off and move to strike. Let them ramble on and on because sometimes stuff will come out in witnesses who like to talk too much that they volunteer and you can seize on. and can lead to some really good discoverable information. Follow up on the answers. Listen. Go where it may take you. Don't feel stuck to a script. It's an outline. It's not, you're not stuck on it, okay? Now, I'm going to wrap up this part, and then we're going to get to all the Q&As. So I recommend, if you can, stay on at 2 o'clock. But I'm going to leave you with this as far as taking depositions, conducting depositions, defending depositions. You're never going to feel like you hit a home run if you're questioning it's rare that you're going to get a witness to say, I did it. It was my fault. I wasn't looking. I was negligent, whatever it is, whatever you're hoping to get or that aha moment, it's usually not going to happen. Rarely going to happen. Sometimes you leave a deposition feeling a bit deflated. Ah, oh, witness was good. They gave good answers. I couldn't really make a dent on them. That's okay. You need to define and understand the definition of a good deposition. You should feel good about the deposition that you conducted. If you prepared properly, if you were organized, if you covered everything, every document that that witness signed, every explanation that they might give, if you covered all the elements, all the open questions you had, any area that would lead to more discovery, as long as you've done all of that and you've gotten the answers to the questions, you've done a great job. And remember, 
get the answer to your question. If you ask them, you know, what color was the car that you saw? Um, and they're like, well, I, I, you know, or if you say, was it red? Well, I don't know. I, I didn't really see things. And no, you didn't answer my question. Was it a red car? Well, I kind of saw some stuff and I'm not sure about the color. Sir, I'm just asking a question. Can you tell me yes or no? Was it red or not? Objection. Asked and answered. Well, I asked. It wasn't answered, though. So I'm going to keep asking it. No, it wasn't red. All right. Get the answer to your question. Don't let a witness make you move off, especially if it's a key question that you need the answer to. Stick to your guns. Respectfully follow up and say, I'm happy to move on. I just need you to answer this question. for me." So that's the way to handle that. All right. Let's get to the Q&A. Uh, this is this is where a lot of the important stuff happens. So what I'm going to try and do is go in order of the Q&A from the beginning all the way to the end, address as much as I can. And if you don't like my response and you have uh, better ideas or just additional ideas, please put them in the chat as well. All right. So Daniel's asking a question about it was a two day deposition uh, and Daniel was the witness. He was waiting to see if his attorney was going to eject. And then this, uh, you know, the other attorney went on this rampage. All right. Um, and uh, the lawyer wasn't doing anything. They were wearing masks. Uh, the other attorney had a pattern of lying to the judge. And so basically, what do you do if you get a lawyer that's like laying down rude things, accusations, calling you as a lawyer, a liar, your witness, a liar, whatever it is, you need to shut it down fast. You need to stop it pull the client out of the room and say, you don't have to answer any of these questions. And if you're a witness and your lawyer's not doing it, you need to step outside and pull your lawyer and say, I'm not comfortable with this. You need to shut it down, okay? So that's part of the idea of not sitting if something uncomfortable is going on. If you're the lawyer or you're a witness and things are getting uncomfortable, that's when you need to stop and step out of the room and have a game plan for moving forward. And if a lawyer is intimidating your client or saying things, you need to go on record saying, counsel, I'd ask you to please lower your tone. You may not realize it, but you're raising your voice and you're yelling and it's intimidating. Please, please be aware of that. Okay. Be kind. Don't forget anything you say on the record. That's going to show up in motion practice afterwards if it goes that far. So be careful what you say and know who your audience is. It's the court that's reading what you're saying. It doesn't matter what the adversary is hearing. All right. Uh, Matt Kaufman, thank you, Matt, for always adding uh, a comment in. He says, be careful when you're prepping a witness who may be a loved one, as I mentioned, because they uh, potentially, if a person is not a client, it could be deemed that if they're present, it destroys the privilege. But just block anything. If they're asking you about anything going on present in the meeting, right? I don't let them answer who was present during the prep. What did you talk about? you know, that's off, off limits. So if I'm defending a witness, I don't care what they ask. If it's anything related to who's present, when we prepped all of that, I shut it down and I recommend you do it. And again, if it's a loved one who's there, you can make an argument that they're there with the client and that it doesn't break the privilege. But by that time, the motions have followed, you've blocked the question, then you just prepare them how to handle the question moving forward. Uh, having loved ones there is definitely a help for the prep. So guide yourself accordingly. Uh, Richard Cordero is asking, uh, how long should the preparation of a witness be while avoiding the charge that you coach them to learn canned answers? Again, 
Your adversary has no right to know how much time you spent prepping your witness. And it doesn't matter what you spent talking about. They're not allowed to ask you about your meetings with your clients. That is privileged. Even how much time you guys spend together talking is privileged. And you're never coaching a witness. To be clear, I do not, um, I do not endorse. To the contrary, I condemn telling a client a lot to lie about something. They always have to tell the truth. So you're not coaching a witness. What you're doing is making sure that what they say is being truthful, but they don't have to go that extra mile and say more than they need to. That's why we work with our witnesses to make sure they are being truthful, to make sure they are not lying. But you have to work with how they answer questions. Say, no, don't go there because that's a problem. Just you don't remember, you don't remember. You don't have to volunteer things that you may not be aware of. All right. So you can spend as much time as you want with your client and don't be worried about being accused of anything. All right. Um, thank you, Melvin, for the nice comments uh, you typed in there. Okay, now let's get to uh, Terry. If you prepare a witness weeks in advance, wouldn't I be concerned about the witness forgetting what you prepped them on at the time of the deposition? Good question. So if I prepare a witness weeks in advance, I usually only do that knowing that we're going to be talking again as it gets closer. So what I might do, I'll always reach out to the client before the deposition, like the day or two beforehand, if I prep them a week or so in advance. And I'll ask them at the end of that earlier prep session from weeks before, how are you feeling? Do you want to get together for another session? I want to make sure you're comfortable. I will find the time. Let me know if you want to meet again. Um, or we could just have a quick phone call. Or if you feel good, you know, I'll shoot you a text. Let me know if you want to meet or if you're good. So as long as you keep that communication going and your client's comfortable and you're comfortable that your client is good to go, then you can play it as it goes that way. All right. Thank you, Terry. All right. Um, all right. Um, Maxine is asking, does the other side have a right to seek or obtain any materials that the witness reviewed in preparation for deposition? Yes. It's very important that you have a conversation with your client and let them know that anything that they review to prepare for the deposition, if they are asked about it, we have to provide that to our adversary and they're entitled to see materials used in preparation for a deposition. So if you're going to show something to your client in preparation for a deposition, you need to know and your client or witness needs to know that if the other side doesn't have it already, they're entitled to see it. So you may want to be careful about what you review together uh, because it's fair game. But also it works both ways. Whenever I question a witness, and I recommend you have a section in your outline saying in preparation for your deposition today, did you review any materials such as photos, videos, uh, medical records, documents? Yes, I did. What did you review? Tell me, make notes of it. And if there's stuff that you don't have a copy of, stop it right there, ask for copies of it to review. You're entitled to that. Okay. Um, Joshua is asking for some firms, okay, an attorney, usually for simple lawsuits with predictable issues, only finds out who will they be deposing or defending uh, the day before. What do I recommend for these attorneys? Well, first of all, you have to speak to management at your firm. Say, listen, you know, 
it's not fair to tell me the day before that I have to question this deposition. I want to do a good job for the firm. I want to do a good job for our clients. I need to have a little bit of notice so I can prepare properly. So I would recommend that you have that conversation and say, please don't throw it to me, you know, at eight o'clock the night before. That's not fair. Yeah, I've done hundreds of these before, but um, I want to be able to take time, review the materials. We may not have everything in our file. If it's an auto accident, a simple auto accident, but we've requested, you know, photographs and we haven't gotten them yet. I want to have those photographs. I want to know and have a chance to get that material before the deposition. So I would do everything you can to try and get notice. And if not, if you have to stay up all night preparing, it's your job to prepare as best you can once you know you're going to be doing that questioning. But yeah, it stinks if uh, you're put in that position by someone. Um, okay. Matt's asking, the 30B witness does not have to be only one witness. Further, the producer cannot take a position that no one exists without knowledge. Um, look at this comment. I won't need to read it all out, but thank you, Matt. Yeah, there could be more than one witness to respond to a 30B6 notice. It's a great discovery tool. If you're in federal court, do a little homework on 30B6 uh, notices and depositions. You'll be glad you did. It'll lead to some really good discovery. Yeah, Matt, I love that quote. Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Okay. Um, am I afraid, uh, Richard's asking again, that if I do a deposition via Zoom, the witness will be given hidden signals by their lawyers on how to answer questions. I'm not really afraid of that, you know? I mean, take a look when you're asking a question. Are they looking down? Are they, you know, are they looking at another screen? You could always ask them, say, you know, you're under oath. I just want to make sure that no one else is present in the room. Do you understand? Is that true? Yes. And do you understand that you are not allowed to communicate with your lawyer or anyone else while I'm asking you questions? Do you understand that? Yes, I do. Do you agree you will not be communicating? Yes, I do agree. And then you go from there. For the most part, you know, they're not, you know, they, they're texting answers. They're not going to have time to read a text or get an email. I'm really not too worried. As long as I get the answer I want, I'm satisfied with that. And I usually don't run into that as a problem ever. I think that Zoom, uh, you can very accurately read witnesses. I don't have a problem with that. Okay. Um, Jessica, yep, preach. No need to be a jerk, folks. We're all working with each other. You know what amazes me? I settled a case earlier this year with a very nice claims representative. And at the end, I said, thanks for working with me to bring this case to a resolution. And she said, thanks for not being mean to me. I was like, what? She said, yeah, thanks for not yelling at me. You don't know how many lawyers yell and scream at me all day. And I just, I shake my head. You know, why would you scream at someone who you're asking for money for your client? You know, we all have clients, right? I'm not going to scream at my adversary. We're lawyers. We got to make each other look good to our clients, help each other out. If you're a young lawyer, your reputation is going to follow you. If you're an older lawyer, you've been doing this like I have for several decades, you're already starting to see you're running into the same lawyers on different cases. Cases come and go. Law firms and lawyers stay the same. Keep that in mind. You know, be nice. If someone burns you, then you don't have to do them any favors moving forward. But don't you be a jerk. There's just no need to. Okay. Um, Thomas is asking, do the included usual steps include anything with regard to depositions being conducted virtually? And do they need to? 
So the usual ones don't. Almost every court reporting company now has um, added something to the STIPS for a virtual, uh, like a Zoom uh, deposition. So they will usually read that in or ask you to look at that. And that definitely applies to what I was just talking about as far as you're agreeing that you're not sending, you know, uh, coded messages uh, or texting or email or communicating digitally. Uh, and there are some agreements. So there are some Zoom steps or virtual steps. Uh, any court reporting company should have them and you can ask them to send those to you in advance. Good question. All right, Gabriel's asking if there's an official list of what objections count as objections to form. He's, uh, Gabriel seen asked and answered, vague, ambiguous, calls for speculation. So there's no list that you can go to asked and answered. Okay, but it doesn't mean that you can't ask the question again. All right, I'll say fine. I'm going to ask it again, even if you say ask and answered. Ask and answered is not a basis to block somebody. Okay, um, you could say, counsel, you keep asking the same question over and over again. And then if you read it back and it looks like you are, then ultimately you can make an argument it's harassment and that you can block. But Asked and answered is fine. Give a little leeway. Say, I'll always say, counsel, that's been asked and answered. You know, I'll let you ask it again, but please let's move on. That's usually how I handle it. Um, if someone's objecting that a question's vague, uh, ambiguous, then you have them read the question back. And then you can say, what's vague about that? I asked them, you know, what time it was. Um, obviously, if you're defending a witness, and an adversary, uh, you want to object that it's vague. Um, it may be that you're not sure what they're asking. And you could say, I'm sorry, I'm not clear on what you're asking. And if I'm not clear, I don't want my client to answer. Are you asking them about it, complaints they made from this accident? Are you asking about complaints they made specifically with regard to the hand? Are you asking about complaints they made prior to the accident? Your question of what complaints did they make about their hand is just a little too general. Would you mind limiting that? Usually lawyers like, okay, I'll, I'll limit it, okay? So there's no real list, but generally you don't have a right to object to too much. The key is, is it something that's palpably improper? Does it go to a privilege or is it just, does it make sense as it's phrased either by form or otherwise, then you ask them to rephrase, okay? Adam Scheinbach, Shiny, good to hear from you, man. Call me sometime, let's do a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, thank you for your comment. Always good to hear from you. All right, Christopher, would I actually allow a witness to answer questions regarding a document clearly requested in prior document discovery, but not produced prior to the deposition? Or would you demand a continuation of the deposition until after you have had the opportunity to examine the document? Great question. Here's what happens in real life. We all show up, our clients being uh, questioned, and our adversary pops something on us for the first time, shows a photograph, shows a document that they weren't kind enough to give it to us uh, in discovery before the deposition or even before the start of the deposition. It's supposed to be a gotcha moment, okay? That's not supposed to happen. You should exchange everything, certainly if it was demanded in discovery. But even so, you always have the right at counsel to say, we haven't seen that. You're just producing that for the first time now. Let's take a break so I can review it with my client. And then you're entitled to do that. I take a break. 
I'll show them the photos. You could do it virtually or in person. I'll show them the documents, break for however long you need to go over the documents. And once you're done reviewing them, then you go back and continue with the deposition. I prefer not to bust or break a deposition under that, but you are certainly entitled. Do not let your witness answer a question about something that you have not seen and the witness hasn't seen, and more importantly, that you haven't had a chance to review together, okay? You stop the deposition, you review everything, and then you go from there. All right, Wilbur is asked, Wilbur Ramos is asking about um, getting a ruling via phone, then there's nothing to appeal. If the judge gets it wrong, isn't it better to mark? So what you do, um, Wilbur, is you have the court reporter take down uh, what is said by the judge during the decision. So you do have a ruling, or even the, the law clerk. You, may, you tell that court reporter, I want you to take down exactly what the judge says on the phone. So make sure you have that, uh, and you add that in, and it'll be part of the transcript. So that's how you use that. Okay, Maxine, are the preserved objections then adjudicated via motion in limine? Good question, Maxine. It depends. It depends what the question was. So let's say that um, they ask a question of your client and uh, it's your client, you let them answer over objection, uh, but let's say it's about a, a prior crime. All right, and then you're worried now you're coming up to trial that um, they're gonna bring that out when you put the witness on the stand. Yes, you would make a motion in limine, and this is what's commonly done, saying based upon a question asked at the deposition on this date of my client, uh, next year to his exhibit so-and-so on the page, they asked the following questions. We believe this line of questioning um, is not relevant or prejudicial, whatever your legal argument is, uh, and should not be uh, allowed to be questioned at the time of trial. Just the question itself could be prejudicial and we'd like a ruling on this now. That's generally how it's done. Uh, if you're worried that it could be something in a summary judgment motion, then you'd make ask the court uh, to rule on it prior to any motions are made. Uh, and then you could send a letter to the judge asking for permission, or you could just make a motion uh, for a protective order. Usually it's exactly what you suggest in your question. Usually what you do is anything bad in a deposition that you're looking at as you're getting close to trial, you're going to want to make a motion and eliminate to keep it out or to talk about it, depending what your position is. If you're joining us via podcast, today's second verification code is POD507. Again, POD507. All right, moving along. Uh, Michael, hello, you were asking, can parties agree to preserve all form objections so that you won't have to object about each of those? Absolutely. Parties can agree to anything and everything, and judges love it. They love it at trial. They love it in discovery disputes, and certainly at a deposition. If you and counsel get along, you're like, hey, can we just put a statement on the record? We both agree that every possible conceivable objection, including form, is preserved so we don't have to object during this deposition, and you both make a statement on the record, agreed, agreed, so stipulated, you move forward. You can absolutely do it, and that would be great if you could. Okay, uh, Susie's asking, what happens when you call and neither the judge or the law secretary are available, and there's no ability to get a ruling? Is it too late now to call the judge or make a motion to compel an answer? Good question. So make a record 
right? Uh, go back in, uh, let the record reflect that we just tried to reach the presiding judge on the case. We called this phone number, which we have as chambers. We also called the part. We were told nobody's available. You know, make a record of your efforts. Then at the end of the deposition, then you make a motion. And your motion is to compel uh, the witness to come back for a further deposition to answer these questions. You'd say, we tried uh, to get a decision at the time, but nobody was available. See exhibit so-and-so, and then cite to the questions that were blocked. Uh, this was blocked contrary to the law, which only allows under very strict circumstances. Accordingly, we asked the court to compel uh, them to produce this witness at their cost uh, for a further deposition via Zoom or in person. That's how you would handle that. Because that may happen. You may not always get somebody but you want to make a record of your attempts. All right, moving right along. How do you bust an EBT ethically? Good question. I mean, basically, you go on the record and you try and give your basis that you find that this lawyer is uh, habitually harassing your client and questioning, and it's not appropriate, and uh, we're not going to go through this. Uh, we want to get a judge on the line. We haven't been able to do that. So we're stopping the deposition so that we can get a ruling from the court with how to proceed because uh, we're not happy with how things are proceeding and we don't believe the deposition can proceed appropriately. Um, that's how you do it. And I don't like when people bust depositions at all. I'm a big proponent of dealing with the issue right then and there. I don't bust depositions. Um, I don't recommend you ever do but people like to do it. Um, I don't know why they have the reasons, but you're really not supposed to. And you have to have a good answer and good reason if you're going to. All right, um, Carol, what equals harassment during a deposition? And can I stop that questioning? Um, it's a, you know, it's, there's no real definition. So I'll give you an example. The one that I spoke of earlier where the lawyer kept asking questions about cannabis. Do you smoke before this? Do you smoke about that? When we had the motion on paper and we submitted the transcript, I said that he was harassing, as you can see through all these questions. And then the judge read it. And in the conference we had about the, I guess the argument about it, she said, yeah, I've got to say, I agree with Mr. Smiley. This this uh, this appears to be if it's not harassment, it's certainly bordering on it. So, you know, it's going to be uh, based on the line of questions, how the questionings were there. It could be. That's why you got to make sure you make a good record um, because tone doesn't come out. So if your adversary screaming at your witness or pointing a finger in your witness's face, you say, I want the record to reflect that counsel is raising his or her voice, is pointing his or her finger in my client's face, in my face, um, and then let the record reflect. The witness keeps doing that. Uh, we're not going to proceed if this happens again. We do not feel comfortable with the witness. So make a record of whatever you believe is harassment. And if it gets to a point that you just don't feel comfortable with it, stop the deposition. Say, we're going to proceed with notifying the court and try and do it there in person. If not, then do it um, on papers afterwards, okay? All right, someone is disagreeing with me, which I like, because that's always good to have a discussion. I respectfully disagree. I have a plaintiff's attorney that pulls a client out of our room, and then they come back and change their answer. 
Well, the judge to complain that it was improper. And on two occasions, the judge asked plaintiff's counsel if they spoke to the witness about their answer. And let me ask on the record about the discussion because it was not proper. All right. So here's where uh, Samantha, thank you, Samantha, is saying, listen, if you pull them out to change their answer and it's clear on its face, um, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And so the the judge here let Samantha say, you know, did you talk about changing your answer? And so and that was limited. It's not what else did you talk about? You can't get into all of that. But in that situation, I can see that. So, look, you know, you have to be careful if the witness you can't be pulling witnesses out left and right because you don't like their answer and then come back in and the witness gives a different answer. What I'm talking about is if the witness is rambling on and on and on and you want to pull them out and say, keep it short. All right. What's the worst that could happen if you get mad? The judge will say, you say, yeah, he told me to keep it short. Um, but I'll bring them out. And if I find that they misspoke or were untruthful, then you say, it's my job as, the, as an officer of the court. My client said something I don't believe they meant to say that's not truthful. And I wanted to make sure that they corrected it on the record. All right. Those are the situations. I'm not condoning pulling a plaintiff out and saying, Oh, you said you were looking at your phone. Uh, that wasn't good. Go back in and say, no, you misspoke. I wasn't looking at the phone. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not permissible. And I don't condone that. So I agree with you, Samantha. Again, it depends on the circumstances. And what I like to do and what I recommend you all do is if someone does pull a witness out and come back in and the witness is like, well, and they start changing things, say, I, you know, I just want the record to reflect before you go on with your answer. Um, that counsel asked witness to step out of the room. They were out of the room now for about seven minutes. They came back in and now this question, now this answer is proceeding. Uh, I want to make it clear that, that on, that's on the record. And, I and I'm objecting to that, but I'm going to allow the witness to answer. So that's sort of the way that I suggest you handle those situations. Again, protect your witness, protect your case, don't condone lying, um, and deal with it the best you can. Okay. All right. Joseph, should you ever cross-examine your own client in his or her deposition? Um, never cross-examine a client ever. Um, so if the question is, do you ask your own questions? So this is my client's been questioned. They're done with the questioning. But let's say they didn't ask my client about their complaints, their pain and suffering complaints. And I'm sitting there do I then say, wait, counsel, I want to ask my client some questions. Can you tell us about the complaints you have as a result of this accident? Can you do that? Yes. Um, do I do that? Rarely. I'm happy to be done with it. Because once you ask your own client questions, that opens up the door for your adversary to start asking more questions, following up on your questions. And it can go on and on. You don't need a deposition to ask your client questions. You could always have your client fill out an affidavit for whatever it is you want to get out there. If I want to oppose a motion for summary judgment uh, and they didn't ask questions that I think would help me oppose it, I have my client prepare the affidavit affirmation to say what needed to be said and submit that with my motion or whatever other purpose. So I'm not a big fan of asking my own client questions and depositions. Uh, but again, it's your choice. You could decide how to do that. I don't think there's a need to do that. Um, and I think it opens up more potential problems than it's beneficial. All right. Thank you, Beth, for the nice compliment. 
All right, um, Ezra. Sometimes when my client is being questioned and answers a key question, my adversary will try to ask the question again later in the deposition in the hopes of getting a different answer. When I object, I'm told it's not a valid objection. How would you handle it? I'll say that you asked this question, it's asked and answered. They did answer it, and I'm not comfortable with them giving the answer again since they answered it. So let's go back, and I would say let's find it and have the court reporter read the question and answer on the record. Say, as you can see, your exact question was asked and a full answer was given. So I'm going to ask that you please move on. Well, I want to ask it again. Say, well, no, you can ask a different question. But as you can see, we've just demonstrated you've already asked this and they already gave you an answer. And I'm not going to allow it to, to move forward. And then at that point, I'd object and say, don't answer it. And then let him get the judge. But again, make sure the question is the same question and the answer given was it. If anything, um, you know, take a break with your client and say, listen, they're going to ask you the same question. Just make sure you give the same answer. Don't start changing things. So those are sort of the ways I would address that situation. Okay. Ah, I don't know if anybody heard the, it's, I see what time it is. It's 2.28. I had my phone on airplane mode. So I'm curious if I if anybody had a problem, but we're still going. So that's good. All right. I got two more minutes and a bunch more questions. So I'm not gonna be able to get through all these questions today. Feel free to email me. I try and get back to you within 24 hours. That's usually my guarantee. You'll have a response in 24 hours. Also feel free to set up a one-on-one -on -one with me. You can do that by going to the mentoresq.com or by scanning right here. So I'm going to wrap it up here and let Michelle finish up. I encourage you to listen to the podcast. If you haven't, if you're listening now, thanks for listening. Scan this QR code if you like um, the material I'm presenting and it'll give you links to meeting with me, my book, my one-on-ones and all that.